Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop Podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. At the beginning of 2013, Lighthouse hosted its very first open house at 1515 Race. The night began with a class titled Intro to the Writer's Workshop, followed by a meet and greet of Lighthouse members, both new and old, its faculty and staff. The open house concluded with four instructors reading from their current creative projects. These featured readers were Jennifer Itell, Doug Kurtz, Catherine Hope, and John Cotter. So Lighthouse has been around almost 15 years. Can you believe that? Amazing. This is our second open house. So I'm glad you're here because we'll have the next one in seven and a half years. you're, You're all welcome to come to it. So thank you for being here. Um... I like it when it gets quiet. It makes me feel like I'm in control. Uh, my name is Mike Henry. I'm the executive director of Lighthouse Writers Workshop. I'm also one of the co-founders. Um, thank you for coming to the open house. Um, for how many of you is this the first time you've been here? Wonderful. Welcome. Welcome. We'd love to see new faces. So Dan's going to introduce the readers, Dan, the creative curator, with a cool flowered shirt. And there's like a flowered shirt underneath the flowered shirt. It's what? The sun's under the flower, of course. I thought that was Nice. Please give a Dan Manzanares a welcome. All right. I lied, it is chest hair. In the shape of suns. Um <laughs> I'd also like to bring down a word into the grotto. Um, I know. (laughs) The word is transform. Um, recently I spent, uh, three nights and four days, uh, on a solo writer's retreat in the mountains. Um, I, I got a little cottage that had a little kitchen so I could bring in my food and cook in it and never leave it. Um, I also bought cigarettes. I don't smoke. But after buying, after buying the wine and the tequila, which, I mean, that was just a no-brainer. I was like, something's missing. And cigarettes popped in my head, and I bought some. And I was like, I don't even know if I'm going to smoke these, but it just felt like the thing to do. And so the weekend kind of revolved around, I mean, a few things, but one of them was like, why cigarettes? And what, and what I ended up doing is just smoking two and throwing the rest of the pack away. But I would go, there's a little river next to the cabin, and I would take a break in the afternoon, smoke a cigarette, and sit by the river. And I came away from that like, why, why? Why did, why did I need to do that? Why? <laughs> what was the purpose of feeling that? And it's not to like advocate smoking or drinking, you know, but there, but there was that, there's something, there was like that need to transform. And it kind of became this thing of the weekend for me. This kind of like this, that the word was like the revelation I had. Um, and so, you know, what is that? What is that, that, that transforming aspect of writing and kind of using cigarettes and alcohol as like a metaphor, you know, to transform, but doing it, you know, like a, anyway, um, 
you know, to be transformed, to feel transformation, what is that? I don't really know. Um, what I do know is the how, the how you get there. Um, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you how, (laughs) um, because lighthouse has told me how multiple times. Um, Jake Adam York told me, and, uh, he said, you see your writing. This isn't a quote. You see your writing as becoming part of the conversation, that ancient conversation, um, of past and future writers and lighthouse teaches me how to become a part of that conversation. Um, and thus how to transform. So I just wanted to bring that word down here, um, tonight for you guys. And that's that. Um, Jenny, I tell, um, Jenny, I tell, often writes short stories, sometimes writes personal essays, and pretty much always has a novel in progress. (laughs) Her work has been published in a variety of journals and magazines, including The Normal School, Ellery Queen, Mystery Magazine, Literary Mama, 5280, Red Book Magazine, and Story Quarterly. She's been a part of Lighthouse in some capacity, folding newsletters, facilitating workshops, eating mini cupcakes at parties for over a decade and is looking forward to facilitating the upcoming intermediate short story workshop. Please uh, give a warm welcome to Jenny Itell. Well, transform is probably a great um, word since I'm reading from a novel that has been transforming for like years and years. Um, I'm going to start us off tonight with a um, a selection from um, something I'm working on that I've recently been calling my ghost novel. Um, And I was trying to think of a way to preface this without going um, backwards five years, and, and I can't. So bear with me for a minute, please, um, while I tell you about the plot of a novel that I drafted five years ago. Um... Main character, Amelia, is kind of bored with her life, and um, she receives a letter that isn't meant for her. It arrives at her apartment. It was meant for a previous tenant named Sarah. Um, She opens the letter and reads it, and it's um, from Sarah's grandmother asking if she will go um, take care of uh, her grandparents' beach house for the summer because they can't get there themselves anymore and and they need to sell it. And um, Amelia gleans from reading this letter that... um, that a lot's happened in the past for um, Sarah at the speech house, and also that Sarah, the granddaughter, is kind of missing in action, and, and sending out this letter to her was kind of a, um, a shot in the dark. So Amelia decides to um, respond to this letter as if she's Sarah and go to the beach house and get a free place to stay for the summer at the beach. Um, so I wrote a novel based on this premise five years ago, and it, it didn't go much farther than my file cabinet drawer where it lived for a really long time. And then um, I took it out about a year ago and um, when I felt ready to work on a long-term project again and um, just didn't feel like starting something new and, and felt like there was still something there that I, that I liked that I wanted to, to work with, but I knew it wasn't quite right. And um, I was walking with Andrea Dupree one day because she and I walk and talk about writing a lot. And I said... Um, you know, I just, I feel like maybe just doing something drastic, like throwing like a, a ghost in or something. And um, 
for those of you who know Andrea, you know she's like super encouraging. Um, so she said, she said, you should throw a ghost in. And I did. <laughs> and um, So um, the pages are, I'm going to read are, are from this latest draft, um, and they're kind of early on. Amelia has arrived in this house where she shouldn't be, and, um, and uh, she's just kind of settling in. And kind of a new detail ab- about her is that um, she, in the months before taking off on this adventure, she has started to read kind of obsessively um, late 19th and early 20th century ghost stories. Um, and the the, um, the current novel is titled um, The World Next Door. A loud slapping sound woke Amelia from a nap. The book she'd been reading, the ghost stories of Edith Wharton, had fallen off her lap onto the hardwood. Her heart raced while she sought to get her bearings. She'd been dreaming of swimming in the ocean and then of being underwater beneath the waves, digging for something in the wet silt. She'd woken before her dream revealed what she'd been trying to unearth. This was the second time in the week and a half since her arrival at the Serena's that she'd had an ocean dream. It didn't feel like her dream. It didn't because she'd never been an ocean swimmer. She'd always preferred to walk along the water's edge, wetting only her feet and calves. It was like the dream had come with the house, Amelia thought. Then she shook off the thought, attributing it to having read too many ghost stories. She was dreaming of the ocean, she rationalized, because she was so near the ocean, because the air felt damp and salty and pervasive. Amelia picked up the Wharton collection, one of the books she'd brought with her for the summer, unofficially borrowed from the library where she was still technically employed, and set it on the coffee table on top of the half-done jigsaw puzzle of an English garden. The puzzle had been there since her arrival. The only thing that had made her feel when she'd first come through the front door into the living room as if maybe someone had just stepped out and the house wasn't unoccupied after all. She'd been clutching Trisha Serena's welcome letter, which she'd found in the mailbox. The letter had mostly contained practical information about water valves and garbage collection and things like that, but there'd also been this. I imagine it would feel somewhat strange to enter the house all by yourself. I always thought it felt odd to take that first step inside after the house had been sitting empty all winter. I used to get the weirdest sense that all our belongings, once I stepped through the door, had only just that moment become still and that up until then, the house had somehow been carrying on without us. The puzzle had given Amelia that carrying on sense and she'd stood frozen just inside the door for a while, prepared with her story in the event that someone come out of the bathroom or one of the two shut doors, bedrooms they turned out to be, off the main room. Her story wasn't a great one, just that she'd rented one of the little houses in the neighborhood for the summer and that the rental agency must have made a typo in the address. She would claim she hadn't used a key to let herself in. The door had been unlocked. She would say the paperwork from the agency was in her car and then she'd drive off. But the house had been empty. The 1,000-piece puzzle had apparently been left out by the Serenas. Maybe it took them several summers to complete such a puzzle. No one had come by the house since Amelia's arrival, and the neighbors, mostly weekly renters, Amelia had surmised, were busy enjoying their own vacations and weren't concerned with hers. So she settled in. During the drive from Massachusetts, she'd been envisioning a fancier place and beachfront versus bayside, but it turned out that the small, unassuming house suited her. The inside was outdated and cluttered. Someone had liked to collect things, beach-themed salt-and-pepper shakers, Louis L'Amour novels. 
and the entire back porch was packed tight with old beach chairs and umbrellas, rusty bikes, sooty grills. Amelia intended to keep her promise to Tricia and get the house as in shape as she could, but she hadn't yet figured out where to start or how to get past the invasiveness of deciding for someone else what should be kept and what tossed. When she thought about confronting the Serena's things, unease about what she was doing surfaced. It was criminal. A part of her understood this. She was a normal person doing something not normal, which meant, what, that she'd gone crazy? She didn't think so. She'd been living a life that had been going on and on in one direction, and then Trisha Serena's letter had landed at her feet and suggested a turn, and she'd taken it. It had been easy, dishearteningly so. She'd gone to her boss to ask for time off. She'd had a whole speech planned about how she knew she was asking for a lot, of time on short notice, but since she'd taken so little vacation over the years, and since she would help train someone to cover her tasks, but her boss hadn't let her finish, she'd sighed and said to Amelia, maybe this is a good time for us to talk. She'd been meaning to talk to Amelia about cutting her hours to part-time. Funding isn't what it used to be, she'd said. She didn't mention the recently installed computers that could check out and check in books with little human aid or the fact that a large area of their library now looked like a blockbuster's. But Amelia thought of those things as she sat there dumbly in her boss's office. People didn't go to libraries in search of information the way they used to. They used the Internet. And the neglected books that Amelia had been pruning from the stacks to make room for videos, they would go off-site to archives. The library, it turned out, no longer needed Amelia, or it needed her a lot less. Amelia left the library that day feeling dejected, but also set free. She didn't intend to return to a demotion at the end of the summer. She left with a bag full of books through the back door so as not to signal the censors. It was the first time ever she'd taken books in this way, an act of disloyalty after a decade of loyalty to the library. Or maybe it was an act of loyalty toward the books. She was saving them from their desolate fate in archives. As for her apartment, her landlord had been okay with the soft-spoken MIT student Amelia found to sublet for a couple months. Even her friends and family hadn't been that hard to evade. She'd told her mother an edited version of her plans over the phone, and her mother had said it sounded lonely and wanted the phone number of where Amelia would be staying. I don't know if there's a phone, Amelia had said. I'll get in touch once I'm settled. Easy. On the other hand, Amelia knew... From all the stories she'd read during her quiet lunch hours in the library's back room, that an easy start wasn't always what it seemed, that sometimes the easiness, if one looked or listened closely enough, contained in itself a sense of foreboding. Some noise outside drew Amelia's attention, kids playing. Their shrieks came in through the living room window, which Amelia had opened a few inches to help stir the hot air, but she'd kept the thin curtains shut. The kids sounded close, as if playing on the Serena's lawn, Amelia sat still in her chair, the worn plaid chair she'd taken to reading in, waiting for them to pass, but they didn't. Their voices drew closer and closer until Amelia realized they were talking in hushed voices just underneath the window. Here, help me, she heard one of them one of them say, a boy. We can stand on this. Then a knock on the glass. Shit, Amelia thought. It was too late to make a dash into one of the bedrooms. Whoever was out there would see her. She felt caught, but it was just kids, she told herself. Hello, the boy said again. Amelia didn't answer. There's someone in there, she heard him say. She's in there sitting in a chair. Is it the ghost, a little girl's voice answered. Nah, the boy said, it's a real lady. Then through the window he called, hey, lady. (laughs) 
Amelia debated, talk to them and get them to move on as quickly as possible or let them stand outside and yell, drawing attention. Is she dead? The girl voice asked. (laughs) Maybe, the boy said, go find a stick. (laughs) They were going to poke her. This was too much. Amelia stood and the kids screamed. She went to the window and parted the curtain that hadn't served her well at all. A skinny, bare-chested boy stared in at her. Amelia looked out the window and down toward the ground where a little girl was screeching and rolling. It was only the two of them, the boy and girl, though it had sounded from the racket as if a gang of kids had been outside. The two had managed to upturn a large, empty flower pot. The boy was standing on it. The girl, in her fright, must have fallen off. Is she all right? Amelia asked. She's fine, the boy answered. Millie, stop having a conniption and get back up here. The girl quieted and attempted to climb back up on the overturned pot next to her brother. There were siblings, Amelia gathered, from their strawberry blonde hair and freckled, smattered faces. The boy looked about seven or eight, the girl five or six. They were shoeless and wearing patriotic bathing suits. The girls, a one-piece, had a red-skirted bottom and was blue with white stars up top. The boys' trunks were red and white striped. Both of them had dirty faces, their mouths and chins stained with what looked like blue popsicle juice. There wasn't room for the girl on the pot's base. She managed to get up and grab onto the windowsill. Then she held herself there in pull-up position, staring in at Amelia with wide eyes. And she dropped the few, t- few feet to the ground and stayed there, shaking out her wiry arms. Can I help you? Amelia asked. You can buy some lemonade from us, the boy said. <laughs> Amelia noticed the pitcher and stack of plastic cups on the lawn. You're selling it window to window? <laughs> We're selling it on the corner, the boy said, but no one's coming. We got bored, the girl added, so we came to look for the ghost. What ghost, Amelia asked. The one we saw last summer, the boy said. You saw a ghost here in this house? The boy nodded, his eyes big and serious. We were looking in that other window, the one that looks in that bedroom, and we saw a ghost woman in the mirror. How do you know it was a ghost and not a real woman, Amelia asked. Because she looked all old and shriveled and had seaweed in her hair, the boy said. (laughs) And blood, the girl added. The boy shot her a look. There wasn't any blood. Ghosts can't bleed. You think you know everything. I've heard of ghosts that bleed real blood. You have not, Amelia said. You really shouldn't be looking in people's windows. She had a bunch of questions she wanted to ask. Did these kids know the Serenas? What could they tell her? Was Trisha kind, forgiving? What did she look like? Amelia still hadn't decided whether it was better to know more or less. From somewhere, she heard a voice. Frank, Millie, get back here. "Uh Uh-oh, she's awake, the girl said. And the boy said, oh, crap. He jumped off the the flower pot and started across the lawn, leaping in big steps over the prickly grass. His sister followed. Amelia started to call after them to tell them they'd left their lemonade, but then they ducked through some shrubbery that served to divide the Serena's lawn from the next and were gone. Amelia felt unnerved though not because of the boy's story about the ghost sighting. If there was an empty house, of course kids would fill it with a ghost or two. What had shaken her more was the girl asking if she was a ghost. In a way, she was. She was the Serena's shadowy, uninvited guest. She would keep the neighborhood kids from toppling in the windows, maybe. Amelia picked up Wharton again, tried to find where she had left off. In the prologue to her stories, Wharton talked about continuity and silence, how these were the conditions ghosts needed. 
She'd written this in 1937 in reaction to a claim that ghosts had gone out with electricity, that the bright and noisy modern world had chased them away. Wharton disagreed. She believed there were still quiet hours, small hours, they were called then, and quiet places in which ghosts could dwell. But she conceded that small hours were growing smaller and that ghosts might eventually give in to the impossibility of finding standing room in a roaring and discontinuous universe. Amelia liked Wharton for such phrases, the impossibility of finding standing room in a roaring and discontinuous universe. In college, when she'd been assigned the age of innocence, she hadn't been particularly struck. But since coming upon Wharton's ghost stories in a forgotten corner of the library, Amelia had connected with her. The world had seemed to Wharton roaring and discontinuous in 1937. What would she make of the current world, of her books being displaced by videos? What would she think of computers and cell phones? Would her ghosts be able to navigate among all the radio frequency? Maybe Amelia felt a kinship with Wharton because she felt sometimes like one of the ghosts Wharton had prophesied, swept under, unable to find her proper place. Thanks. All right. Uh, Up next is Doug Kurtz. Uh, Doug Kurtz teaches intermediate novel workshop and a variety of craft classes at Lighthouse. His last novel, Mosquito, was published in 2007. His next one, tentatively titled Hunter's Island, from which he will read tonight, is currently in progress. Let's give a warm welcome to Doug Kurtz. Thanks, everybody at Lighthouse, for organizing this. It's a real privilege to read here, and uh, I appreciate it very much. Um, My novel is set in Kansas on a flood-prone lowland called Hunter's Island, which is also the working title. Uh, The narrator narrator you'll be hearing from tonight, Kyle Keenan, returns home seven years after abandoning his family during a cataclysmic flood. He has a psychotic twin, Damon, whose name you'll hear in this chapter. Plot-wise, you need to know that Kyle's father is missing after a botched crime spree. His mother is searching for her husband metaphysically. Kyle's sister Isis is pregnant by parties unknown, but her former babysitter, who's under threat of deportation, has offered to marry her. Here goes. Uh, (laughs) May you continue to take my classes after hearing this. There is profanity. Um... Last time I'd been here, the table was covered in dirty dishes and famished cats, but now it was clean and uncluttered, its faded oak veneer a display area for a collection of my father's things. I reached for a pair of wire-rimmed glasses and turned them in my hands, let my eyes roam to a cigar box that held his collection of pocket knives, then to a jar of fly-fishing lures, the tiny white skull of a hummingbird, a roll of two-dollar bills, An old loafer creased and worn to the unmistakable shape of his foot, unique as a fingerprint. Other remnant pieces of him, all doorways into memories I'd forgotten were mine. I've been trying and trying, but I just can't feel him anymore. My mother's voice coming from somewhere behind me. When I turned to face her, she was gazing through the tabletop at some distant point beneath it, her lifeless black hair spilling forward to reveal a stripe along her part where the roots had gone gray. He's vanished from my senses, Kyle. I can't find him anywhere. 
I don't remember if I went to her or if she came to me, but next thing I knew, we were in an embrace at the middle of the kitchen amid all the junk she'd been processing for signs of my father, piles and piles of it. This was no mundane cleanup she'd undertaken. This was some sort of metaphysical forensics, a search for extrasensory impressions, for lingering spiritual evidence, and it exceeded in its desperation all the financial, criminal, and other difficulties she was facing in the physical realm. She clung to me as if to a buoy, fingertips digging to keep her afloat, and for the first time I felt in her a fallibility she'd never revealed to me before, the potential for error and confusion and misjudgment and fear. As we held each other, the resistance that had kept us apart for so long seemed to dissipate, to vacate our bodies and dissolve in the air. Not a day has passed that I haven't wished for this, she said into my ear. Me too, I whispered. When the hug lost potency, we let go of each other and retreated to a less intimate distance, both of us embarrassed and emotional. My mother went to the sink to wash her sooty hands. I moved a, sack of, a stack of wedding magazines off the chair, scooted up to the table, and sat in contemplation of my father's things. I felt strangely detached from myself, at the brink of some crucial psychic insight, but then the faucet shut off and jarred me back to equilibrium. I reached for a modern bride and opened it on my lap. How's Isis, I said. My mother shot me an ambiguous look, something akin to alarm, and dried her hands on a dish towel. You know how she is. She's worried about your father like the rest of us. I nodded, flipping through pages, pausing on photographs of glossy, grinning brides, none of whom appeared to be seven months pregnant or addicted to cools or self-tattooed or high school dropouts with Ivy League test scores or engaged to middle-aged pig farmers from the former Czechoslovakia who used to be their babysitter. (laughs) I'd been worrying about ISIS intermittently for years, and now I couldn't get her off my mind. I wanted an explanation, anything to make sense of this arrangement with Andre, and now that my mother and I had waded deeper into the swamp, it seemed like time to get one. I don't understand what she's doing with him, I said. My mother's neck tensed, and she answered without looking at me. They're getting married, Kyle. That's what they're doing. That's not what I mean, I said, closing the magazine. Why? Why are they even together? What legitimate interest can Isis possibly have in him? Andre adores her. He takes care of her, and that's what she needs. You're in favor of it? Is it even legal? No response, but the tendons on her neck stood out. I'm not trying to argue, I said. I'm just trying to understand. A moment of pensive silence. Then she released a sigh of capitulation and tossed the dish towel onto the counter. Believe me, I know how it looks. But this is her third pregnancy in less than two years. Before this, before we had any idea what was going on, Damon paid for her to have two abortions. Did she tell you that? She told me she waited too long this time. Well, your sister likes to make things difficult for herself. Did she tell you she hitchhiked to Lawrence and lived in a homeless shelter for three weeks when she started to show? We had no idea where she'd gone. Your father was beside himself trying to find her. Then a boy she met had her living in some sort of drug house in Wamigo, and if Damon hadn't gotten involved, she might never have made it out or the baby. You saw her little tantrum the other night. She's not coping. She can't be trusted to make decisions. She held up her hand as if to stem the tide of Isis's infractions, then let it fall with a resigned slap to her thigh. There's a lot you don't understand, Kyle. Andre gives her stability, and she trusts him, and at this point, that's all that matters to me. Isis gets stability, and he gets to fuck a 17-year-old, is that it? My mother shot me a disapproving look, then pinched the bridge of her nose and unleashed another sigh. When she looked at me again, she appeared exhausted and overwhelmed. 
Andre's about to be deported. He tried to get a driver's license, and now they're after him, the immigration people. Does that make it easier for you? This was some sort of backward, half-baked, mail-order bride scenario my sister was in, but despite my disapproval, I sensed its urgency. Andre had been living with us for, what, 12 years? I'd always known he was here on the sly, but it never occurred to me that he might have to leave, and the fact that it was happening in coincidence with everything else made my head spin. Part of me wanted him deported ASAP so ISIS would be spared the indignity of marrying him, but I knew he was an integral part of the fabric holding things together and that his removal would cause an unraveling. What about Dad, I said. What does he think? He wants what's best for her. He sees the necessity of it. She told me he hardly speaks to her anymore, that he nearly killed her when he found out she was pregnant. Do you think she's doing it just to appease him? My mother shrugged and sat down in a file box. Isis tells me nothing. It's your father she's close to, so you're better off asking her. All I know is she's desperate to feel secure with him and with everything else. And she has it in her mind that getting married is going to do it. And I hope she's right because nothing else has. The magazine on my lap seemed to gain weight. The cover girl smiled at me from behind a lace veil, blissful in her matrimony, her brown eyes serene, her teeth impossibly white, and for a moment, sitting among among the piles of firebound junk and two-dollar bills and hummingbird skulls, I understood how easy it must have been for Isis to be deceived. Outside, the flames had dwindled, and thick black smoke was billowing up from the tub, rising into the cottonwoods and fluttering the leaves. My mother had gotten up without my realizing and was standing at the mudroom door, watching me. How did things ever get like this? I don't know, she said, pulling a pair of rawhide gloves onto her hands. They just did. Isis's bedroom was right above the kitchen, but thanks to my father's paranoid architecture, it was no longer possible to get there via the front stairs. You had to go through the living room and out the back door into a plywood and cinder block annex then up a shoulder-width staircase that accessed the second-floor hall from the other end, the logic being that rising water would follow the same course, giving everybody time to get to the roof. By the time I crested the stairs, my T-shirt was clinging. It was a sauna up here, the heat stagnant and dense, pressing against me as I walked to the end of the hall and opened the window to the stench of my mother's fire. A moment's debate, and I shut it again, then turned to face my sister's closed door. Stickers Damon and I had plastered all over it when she was little were still there, melded forever to the grungy paint. Star Wars characters, Kansas City Chiefs, Judas Priest. I put my ear to the wood and heard the aggressive bass of heavy metal, then knocked and stepped back. When the door opened and she appeared in the crack, we both went wide-eyed and stared, Isis because she didn't expect it to be me, me because she looked so much paler and more pregnant than the last time I'd seen her just a week or so ago. Hey, she said, pulling the door open. What are you doing here? Hey, baby girl, coming to see you. I stepped inside and gave her a kiss on the head, then pulled her into a one-armed hug. Her body was enormous, hot as a furnace against me. I could smell menthol smoke and incense on her clothes and in her hair and something less pleasant lurking underneath. You're looking good, I said. (laughs) Liar, I'm a lard ass. I look like a sumo wrestler and my fucking tits are killing me. She lifted her breasts and let them fall again, then went to turn down the music. Her tank top and cutoffs barely contained her, and her ankles had doubled in size, distorting her dolphin tattoos to whale-like proportions. (laughs) But as she moved across the room, I could discern her lithe frame beneath the extra flesh, and that made me feel better about her weight. It was the way she moved that concerned me, 
torpid and lethargic like she was dragging a load of sandbags behind her. She didn't look healthy at all. She didn't have that radiant glow of pregnancy that everybody talked about. Her face was drawn and pimply. There were bags under her eyes. Her hair was lank and lifeless, and I got the sense that she probably hadn't bathed since the night I came home and saw her in the tub with Andre. And then there was her room, details of which began to materialize into awareness while I waited for her to pick a CD. Candles of every imaginable color were melted to every available surface, windowsills, bookshelves, nightstand, and countless exhausted incense sticks protruded like quills from the wax. Three makeshift ashtrays were immediately visible, a terracotta pot, an onion crisp container, and a foil pie plate, all packed with butts, some still smoking. Her trash can was an eruption of Kleenex and notebook paper, her love seat lost beneath a mountain of laundry, the top of her dresser crowded with soda can vases whose black-eyed Susans had wilted in the heat. But the wedding paraphernalia is what made my gut clench. Magazines, dozens of them, lay splayed across her mattress, pages nested to form a cascade of images. Hundreds more lined the shelf above the bed, organized by title and date. Brides, elegant bride, Martha Stewart weddings, world bride. The wall behind her stuffed animals was dedicated in its entirety to clippings of dresses, cakes, flowers, shoes, all arranged by category, pinned up with white thumbtacks. Milk crates at the foot of the bed overflowed with fabric swatches, perfume samples, catalogs. Isis, I said, but no distinct thought would take form from my horror. She was staring into the milk crates, too, penetrating their secret dimensions, picking a scab on her lip with one hand and holding a magazine clipping in the other. I could see that it was a white dress, but couldn't make out the details, which were a blur with the trembling of her hand. When I reached out to steady it, she nearly jumped through her mottled red skin. Take it easy, I said, squeezing her fingers. You okay? She nodded and handed me the clipping so I could see what she claimed was going to be her wedding dress. Gown, she called it. She wanted to know if I thought it was elegant. It looked like all the others pinned to the wall, strapless, overpriced, and a long way from accommodating a body like hers. According to the description, the thing retailed for just under 2000 bucks. <clears throat> nice, I said, handing it back. Kind of pricey, isn't it? It's Avira Wang. She's a famous designer from New York. Can you afford that much? Um, no. She reached under her pillow and pulled out an envelope, her digital tremors lingering. I'm going to win it. It's a poetry contest. <laughs> the envelope was unsealed, addressed to Radiant Bride Boutique on 4th Street downtown. I'd never seen the place, but I knew the name because their TV commercial aired on the same local channel mine was about to. As I tested the envelope's heft, trying to interpret its weight, I began to sense that there was more riding on this contest in a wedding gown. Beneath Isis's loopy pink handwriting, the heart-dotted eyes of her name was a subtext of muted desperation. I could almost hear her screaming between the lines, and I hadn't even read the poem yet. With hesitant fingers, I pulled out two sheets— one was an entry form, the other was the poem, pink ink on ruled notebook paper, but I wasn't ready for it, so I read the prompt first. In 100 words or less, tell us why your love is like no other. Grand prize was the Vera Wang, a wedding day limo, and ironically the same bottle of champagne I'd brought for Isis's engagement party. Runner-up got a $250 shopping spree at the boutique and dinner for two at Houlihan's. I cleared my throat, assuming she wanted me to read out loud and flatten the poem on my knee. Beside me on the bed, Isis was quaking, keyed to an emotional pitch that could have shattered Waterford Crystal. <clears throat> Angelfish by Isis E. Keenan. 
An angel swam into my sea when I was five years old. Twelve years afloat, our waters won, he buoys my drifting soul. He navigates ahead of me and lights my sky of black. I see his stars, my course assured, and never need gaze back. Each life has its sea to swim, mine stormy, vast, and deep. The life that swims my starlit womb, my angelfish will keep. He watches me with sea-green eyes, this angel friend and father. Together we are strong and wise, our love is like no other. A, slob, a sob broke loose from Isis's chest, followed by another. I couldn't look at her, couldn't look up from the page. I tried to put my arm around her, but she recoiled and held up a palm while she cried. Was this some kind of hormonal episode I was witnessing, or was my sudden dread justified? I turned to the window and watched a dust devil spin across the road, wondering which of us was having the overreaction. When she seemed stable again, I asked if she wanted me to leave, but she shook her head and leaned back against the pillows, pulling her knees to her chest. Sorry, she said, wiping her nose with the back of her hand. I handed her a Kleenex from the box. Want to talk about it? No. Yes. I don't know. She sucked down a quavering breath and tossed the rumpled Kleenex at the trash can. If I try to explain, you're going to think I'm a total head case. You probably already do. I know Damon does. There's nothing you can say to make me think that. You haven't heard it yet. He has. She swung her foot like a crane into the stuffed animals and toe-plucked a marble-eyed koala from the pile, then propped it on her knees. Dad hates me. He won't even look at me anymore. And I have to get married before the baby comes, but I can't do it without him here, and nobody knows where he's at or if he's coming back, and I'm just sitting here waiting for him, going insane. He doesn't hate you, and you can move the wedding back if you have to. She shrugged, shoulders to ears, and just like that, her tremors were back. What's the matter, I said. I don't know. It's just this feeling I can't get rid of. It's like time's closing in on me. All these things have these dates, and they keep getting closer and closer, but he's still not here, and I have to find a caterer and pick invitations and do all this shit, and I feel like I'm about to explode, and it's making me crazy because I keep having this thought that I can't turn off, and it won't go away. Slow down, baby girl. What thought are you talking about? She dropped her eyes from mine to the koalas and squeezed its head until the marbles bulged. It doesn't make sense. It's so stupid, and I know it is, but I can't get it out of my head. I dream it every night, and I wake up thinking it, and wherever I look, it's there. She was crying full tilt now, black mascara running down her face. What is it, Isis? What's the thought? That I have to win this contest, or it means that he's dead. Thank you. Thanks, Doug. All right. Uh, number three is Catherine Hope. Um, Catherine Hope is a professional editor and has written for numerous papers and magazines. She's taken and taught numerous workshops at Lighthouse and specializes in, specializes in welcoming in new writers or those who could use a dose of confidence. Her first novel is represented by the Bond Literary Agency, and she's now at work on her second. Uh, please give her a warm reception for Catherine Hope. Hi, you guys. How's everybody doing? Wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, this is uh, a novel, the opening of a novel that I put down a little while ago, and I'm picking it back up now, trying to get back into it. So, The Shelter. Dusk is falling. 
the street lights are coming on and the wet road reflects the holiday lights on the storefronts and lampposts. The wet road reflects the holiday lights on the storefronts and lampposts. Snowflakes as big as moths fly at my windshield. The wipers sweep the way in arcs. But inside the glass is fogged up because Gracie is in the back seat, panting. At the stoplight, I look over my shoulder. She's sitting in the center of the bench seat, leaning with her golden coat against the gray upholstery. Her pink tongue dangles in front of her, and a drop of saliva falls onto the down comforter I folded across the seat. I turn up the defroster and crack my window, and then I wonder if these two moves are going to cancel each other out. When the signal turns green, I accelerate slowly. In my rearview mirror, I can see Gracie watching the rings of light on the windshield grow larger and slide around the side of the car. I know my way to the shelter because it's where we picked her out when she was just a puppy, and I remember the building. But I'm not sure where the intake entrance is. When I pull into the parking lot, four large car-shaped mounds of snow sit beneath a sodium lamp, and I assume that these belong to the employees, probably the only people who would be here on New Year's Eve. I drive past the cars and around the building toward the back. I have to roll down my window to see what's to my left. In glowing blue block letters, the sign reads intake. Around the doorway, lights, dripping like icicles, twinkle. I wonder who would do that? Who would make it look so joyful, knowing what the entrance is for? I park beside a lamppost, guessing where the lines might lie under the layer of snow. I turn off the engine. Gracie stops panting. And for a moment, everything is quiet. I realize I'm gripping the steering wheel, squeezing so hard my arms are shaking. The thought blinks on in my head that I've made the wrong decision. My heart panics, and I feel it's uneven thumping. The relief of being certain disappears. I unbutton, I unbutton my coat. Little ghosts of steam escape from between my lips and dissolve. I close my eyes and think back to the day I decided, how great it felt to finally know, how impossibly light I felt floating through my plans, how I've cradled my decision like a secret. It is right. I know it is. Gracie starts panting again. I take the keys out of the ignition and put them in my bag along with her paper, her pills, her raggedy stuffed squirrel toy. When I get out and step into the snow, it gives a soft moan. I open the back door for Gracie and pat my gloved hands against my thighs. She stays put. Picking up her leash, I call her. Come on, sweetie. She lowers her head and looks past me. Her eyes glance from side to side, her eyebrows rising slightly one and then the other, falling again when she looks back to me. I give her leash a tug and I say, Come, Gracie. She doesn't budge. She couldn't possibly remember this place. It's been a very long time. No, she's just an old dog with arthritis who can't take the cold anymore. I take off my gloves and pet her velvety head. I spread my hands over her forehead, her crown, her warm, droopy ears, my face level with hers. I whisper, we have to do this now. It was deliberate that I arrived here just before closing, so I wouldn't be tempted to linger. With a hand on her collar, I try pulling her toward me. She resists. Planting a foot on the floor mat, I wrap my arms around her and pull her, half pull her, half lift her out of the car. 
When I put her paws down in the snow, she turns as if she'll scramble back up into her spot. I block her with my foot, yank the comforter from the seat, and close the door. With my bag over my shoulder, the comforter wadded under my arm and her leash in my hand, I lead Gracie toward the intake entrance. She plods through the snow with her head down and her her tail held low as if she feels guilty. There's suddenly some sense of displacement in me, as if I'm acting this out, but it's not really going to happen. Then the sensation is gone, and I tell her she's a good girl. When we get near the entrance, under the icicle lights, the doors slide open and a gust of warm air hits my face. We step inside onto the industrial gray carpeting. Beyond the counter, a young woman sits before a computer. Her black hair gleams under the can lights, straight and smooth. When I approach the counter, she stands and says hello. Her dark eye makeup looks as perfect as if it's been airbrushed on. A tiny diamond stud sparkles on the side of her nose. We're twins, she says with a careful smile. She's wearing a T-shirt that's nearly identical to the one I have on. Her dragonfly is blue and mine is green. I say, almost. I try to smile, too, but I know it looks forced, and I'm sure she's used to that. Letting the comforter fall beside me, I pet Gracie's head and say, sit. The woman, whose name tag reads, volunteer, waits as I dig in my bag and unload Gracie's belongings. She says, who do we have here? Leaning over the counter and looking at Gracie, who answers with more panting, the corners of her mouth turned up, looking hopeful. I say Gracie's name. As the woman clips a form to the clipboard, she says, do you want Gracie to stay while we do the paperwork? Her, lar- her eyes are large and reflective, rimmed with navy blue coal and filled with empathy. Or do you want me to take her back now? I want to run. My head feels pressurized and tangled. When I imagined this part of the night, I didn't see myself talking to another person, confronting an onslaught of concern. I'm keeping the woman waiting. I say, she can stay. I flatten the comforter out at my feet, and for the first time since home, Gracie wags her tail. She steps onto the comforter, circles, and lies down. The woman picks up a pen with an artificial daisy taped to its barrel. I hold myself tightly together while I give her Gracie's age and my name, address, and phone numbers. She writes it all down on the form in her rolling round cursive. She lowers her voice as if Gracie might understand. Do you need to relinquish her? Creases of care appear between her eyebrows. Or do we need to arrange for end of life? It's all falling apart. Everything was set, but now it's crumbling out from under me. Will it be better if I let them put Gracie to sleep? Then it would be over for her. No more cold, no more arthritis, no waiting for me to come back. I square that idea next to the thought of her sitting on a concrete floor behind Chain Link, barking dogs on either side of her, the smell of kennel. What are the chances someone will want a dog like her? Maybe I should have brushed her before we left. Maybe it would have been better. Maybe. Delicately, the woman asks, Would you like a pamphlet about it? Nope, I snap, though I don't intend to. But that's not what I brought her here for. No thanks. My words don't seem attached to each other. I need to get out of here. Just relinquish. The woman checks a box, makes an X at the bottom of the form, and hands me the pen. Sign there, she says, pushing the paper toward me. 
The fine print says that after this, she might end up at other shelters, and you'll make no claims regarding her or any results of the relinquishment. I don't read it. It doesn't matter. I just sign. I'm pressing my fingernails, one after the other, into my thumb. With the toe of my boot, I stroke Gracie's back. Her tail flops up and down. The woman takes the form off the clipboard and separates the yellow copy. As she folds it in half and hands it to me, she says, Do you mind why, if I ask why you're giving her up? I fight to stay solid. Words fly recklessly behind my eyes, and I have to pick the right ones. I say, I can't take her with me where I'm going. She staples the papers I brought to the white copy of the form and puts them in the plastic tray. She asks, and where are you going? I can tell she doesn't mean any harm. Maybe because it's New Year's Eve and she feels that we're kindred for these few moments, and that's why she's pressing beyond the requirements of the paperwork. I put down the pen, but now I don't know what to do with my quaking hands, so I shove them in my pockets. I answer, out of town. She looks at Gracie and then back to me, her eyes focused on mine and her face sculpted with commiseration. I'm so sorry, she says. That's all I can take. I heave my bag onto my shoulder. I have to leave. I don't want her to be kind to me. I don't want to feel anything, ever. I try to force these stupid tears back, but they spill and I have to wipe them away. She's moving, coming around the counter, and I'm afraid she's going to hug me. But she walks past me, kneels down, and pets Gracie. When she stands, holding the leash, Gracie stands, willing to be led away. The woman makes a kissing sound, and Gracie wags her tail, walking with her, looking up at her. I want my dog. I feel like my chest could crack open and flood the room with how much I want to keep my dog. Turning away, I head toward the door. My face hurts, and I inhale the lump of my breath. Just a minute, the woman says, stopping me. We can't take her things. I turn back, but say nothing. I'm really sorry, she says. It's as if her pretty face is softening more, trying to absorb my ache. I keep my mouth clamped shut. We don't take any personal items with the pet, because we can't be responsible for keeping them together. I nod. I understand. Gracie watches me as I pick up her comforter and grab her squirrel from the counter. I hold up her pills. The woman shakes her head. We do our own prescriptions. I put the pills in my pocket. One last look at Gracie. And all I can do is wave goodbye to her, like an idiot, as if I've ever done that with her before, as if she would know what it means. The doors seem to slide slow, slide open unbelievably slowly, making me wait before I can slip between them and out into the cold night. I run through the snow to my car and put Gracie's things on the passenger seat. I get in and buckle my seatbelt. I wish I'd kissed her. I should have gotten on my knees and hugged her. Dogs remember things forever, the littlest things. But it's too late for that now. No lingering. (coughs) I start the engine and turn on the windshield wipers. The river. After a couple of hours on the highway, I notice the snow has stopped and turn off the wipers. The traffic was light earlier, but now there's none at all. The road was slick in a couple of patches, but not bad for this time of year. I turn into the woods onto the road with a small green sign that has faded past legibility. The white branches of the trees make a tunnel lit inside by my headlights. For a moment I wish I had my camera, 
but those are exactly the kind of thoughts I need to avoid. Anything that encourages my mind to wander ahead, to save anything, to plan beyond this night. I focus on the road as it, as it curves upward through the frozen forest. <coughs> Finally, I come out from under the cover of the trees, and the sky opens up black and wide, with a bright half-moon above the peaks. The road turns, and I know I'm close. One last steep incline, and I see it. The bridge. I came here once with Jared, but that's not why I chose it. Even in a stage of neglect, this old bridge has its beauty, and I want something about this to be beautiful. I park my car on the shoulder next to a sign that reads slow, 15 MPH. Ahead of me, dim yellow lights mark the scallops of the girders, looking smaller and closer together as the bridge stretches away into the distance. I turn off the engine. The heater stops running, and whatever parts are under the hood tick a few times before they fall silent. I take the keys from the ignition and put them on the dash, and I jam jam my bag under my seat. Looking at Gracie's things beside me, I put two fingers to my lips and then touch my fingers to the squirrel. I feel a little silly, but it's meant for Gracie, so I let myself do it. When I get out of the car, a blast of winter air chills my face. I click the lock and swing the door shut. The sound echoes. I can smell the river, though I can't hear it. The air is heavy with minerals and dampness. In the light of the half moon, the trees stand tall and still, the snow heavy on their branches, and the forest stretches up the hills in silver and pale blue. An immaculate layer of snow covers the ground and the road across the bridge. It's perfect. I button my coat, this long, old-fashioned coat that was, was once my mother's. The wool is dense and thick, and when it's wet, it'll be very heavy, and that will help. But for now, I feel light again. I take my first steps toward the bridge. It's funny how time has collapsed and expanded since I decided. When I think of my life, everything seems distant now. But at the same time, it feels as if I snapped my fingers and now I'm here. Each step feels special. I walk down the center of the bridge, golden lights on either side of me. My head fills with the scent of water. And even though I know there's fear in me, it's overwhelmed by the euphoria of knowing I'm almost there. I'm almost to the place where I'll escape the catastrophe I've made of myself. I imagine that when I do it, the mess will stay behind and I'll be free for a second or two. It's a long way to the center of the bridge, and I think by this time I should be freezing, but I don't feel it. My heart is racing, and I feel liquid and graceful, like I'm unfolding beyond myself and becoming something else. This is the best thing to do. I admit I've wavered a few times. This morning I would have given anything for someone to talk me out of it. But then what would I do? Undo everything? Go back? Endure? No. I feel absolutely sure again. A thrill has nestled behind my ribs and replaced the relentless ache that has been lodged there. I I stop and look behind me. My perfect trail of footprints stretches back to my car. I turn and look forward again at the remaining half of the bridge, untouched. I'm stuck 
I'm struck by the beauty of the symmetry. The passage of time has led like footprints to this moment, and ahead, time continues without any trace of me. Thank you. All righty. Our final reader of the evening is John Cotter. John Cotter is a New England transplant just starting on his second full year in Colorado, and so far, it's going okay. (laughs) He'll be teaching an advanced short story workshop at Lighthouse this term, and very possibly a a short workshop on Flaubert, or Flaubert, as I like to say, um, for next term. John is the author of a novel, Under the Small Lights, which is awesome. I've read it um, from Miami University Press, and he edits an online book review site called Open Letters Monthly that is actively seeking submissions. His short story, The Arcadia Series, is just out in the newest issue of Puerto del Sol, and his ghost story, After the Storm, will appear in the spooky magazine, New Genre, at some indefinite point in the future. Please welcome John Cotter. of you. I'm trying to pull it together after that incredibly sad story. Uh, okay. So, uh, when, when Dan, uh, sent me an email and asked me to, to read tonight, he said, um, read whatever you're working on. And I'm sure he didn't think of it as a, like a, a command. And I, and my first thought was like, well, to hell with that. You know, I'll read, I'll read the thing I've read 12 times that people seem to be able to deal with, but, uh, you know, that goes okay. But, um, but actually, uh, I'm going to put this up here. But uh, my my partner, Elisa, uh, encouraged me to read the novel that I had started last week. Uh, so, uh, yeah, right? <laughs> Hold your applause. <laughs> um, so this is, uh, this is a, a portion. Can you hear me okay? Okay. This is a portion... Uh, Microphone has been sufficiently molested now. This is a, a, a portion. <laughs> Jesus. Not an antique, is it? <laughs> All right. This is a, this is a, a portion. <laughs> oh, my girlfriend's covering her face over there. That's, that's, always, a, that's always a helpful sign. Uh, All right. So, uh, so um, in, in my last novel... Under the Small Lights, the character Jack actually shared a lot in common with me. We had a lot. Uh, he was sort of an alter ego. In this book, Golden Sanatorium, uh, Derek, the main character, doesn't share a lot in common with me. He's a big liar, and he's a cheat, and he actually uh, forges paperwork to get the job that he has as a, as a teacher. Um, but there, we do share one thing in common, which is that... Um, well, I guess we share two things in common. We, he was born in Connecticut, like I was, and lived in New England for a long time. And he, he recently moved to Colorado, which I have as well. Uh, I, I moved to Colorado about a year ago. And, and when this story begins, he has moved to Colorado about... Uh, he moved to Colorado about um, a few days earlier. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, so... Um, so all you have to know is that the plot of the novel is that he's going to uh, he's he's going to sort of in the, in the course of his his time in Colorado he's going to fall in love with um, with a, 
a woman named Carmen who's a reporter, an energy reporter. She writes about nuclear energy and fracking and, and um, fossil extraction. And he's going to uh, get involved in an art project along with Carmen and this artist named Meg, which is an a installation piece at the Denver Art Museum, which actually incorporates, unbeknownst to its viewers, nuclear waste and sarin nerve gas in the piece as a way of reaching people. <laughs> right? Uh, so I'll read, just, uh, I'll read just five pages of this. Golden Sanatorium. I tell my class that the Greeks had us walking toward the future backward, which is sound but is also unchristian and illiberal. We can't believe it. We concede that our senses are imperfect, but we augment them with sailors' tales and tradition, and we posit a vanishing point and push off certain of what we'll find, or at least the shape of the land. If we're lost, we call our new islands the Indies and act as if. I never used to believe this was true of me, too. So I should, sorry, I should mention that while, when this chapter begins, he's been to a faculty meet and greet, and he's on a porch uh, at a dinner later on at his friend Ronnie's talking with Carmen, who's a reporter. So why are you here? I mean, why'd you move to Denver? Now she would ask if I skied. <laughs> I don't ski. I don't smoke either, but I'd accepted a cigarette to have something to do with my hands. I puffed without inhaling and tapped the ash on the rail of Ronnie's porch. Past the porch were a string of slouching Victorians, then tufts of weeds sloping down to the South Platte River and back up to some kind of carnival with Ferris wheel lights against the blue dark. The Denver skyline clotted beyond it. The mountains were behind us. Yeah, she said, why not? Her strong chin made her seem self-assured. Do our faces make us, or do we advertise lies? You're here for the skiing, I asked. I'm a writer, she answered, shrugging. She decided she was interested in me, and all I could do now was fumble it. There were four of us at dinner, though I mostly talked with a big guy named Ignacio, whose relationship to Carmen was unclear. They'd gone off for a minute when she arrived, but they hadn't been together since. Ignacio taught where I was going to start teaching myself, although he was in the English department, and his conversation fixated on small batch whiskeys. I didn't know one from the other, so I urged him on with questions the way Carmen was doing now to me, except that she didn't seem to be humoring me, which I'm paranoid enough to have spotted. <laughs> she wanted to dig under me, find the story, but there was no story there that I wanted to tell. So what do you write about, I asked her, to reestablish a give and take. So why are you flirting with me? Of course, this silenced me. I was lonely and she was pretty, but you can't say that. She was nearly as tall as I am and she wore a green Angora sweater. I glanced into Ronnie's kitchen for something to distract me and found not much. Ronnie and Ignacio and a bottle redhead from the visual arts department and Meg. By now they'd be into the finer points of sniffing peat. I leaned close. I wasn't flirting. No, I was sycophantic. You seem important. It was true. <laughs> It was true, her bearing made her more important than the present company or any of Ronnie's colleagues that had met that afternoon. You must write about important things? I write about energy policy, exploration, drilling, the effect of mountaintop removal, and blah, blah, blah. Is there mountaintop removal in, in Colorado? Fracking? I'm from New England. We don't frack out there. Actually, you do. But where in New England? She had long hands, and she played with them in an unstructured way. Her fingers would fold over the fingers in the opposite hand. Then she'd pivot both hands on her wrist and reverse it. If it hadn't seemed nervous, she'd look like a cliché of a criminal mastermind. <laughs> New Haven. It's not what people picture when they think of Connecticut, if they don't know it. Yale, she asked. Good guess. 
She hadn't really asked a question, and I hadn't really answered one. I'm a, I'm a digital media artist. I went on pre-answering video artist. I'm teaching at the school where Ronnie works. You know Golden Sanatorium? Of course she did. She was here because of Ignacio. After a few days in town, I was coming to suspect, though, that Golden Sanatorium was not a famous institution. But it had seemed like the perfect thing, like a life rope when Ronnie called last month. I'd heard his BBC-caliber Sydney Australian accent over the phone. I was still in New Haven, still spending my days hauling trash from curb to truck to incinerator. And he said, the place I work, Derek, it's not bad. It's not a bad place. And where we had an opening... It's the sort of thing I think you can do if you're still holding garbage. <laughs> you're still a garbage man. Well, then what, what do you have to lose? Sending a CV, make a CV, make one up, letting me pull some ears. <laughs> right. That's my Australian accent. Uh, Ronnie, Ronnie, thank you. Thank you very much. Ronnie. Ronnie told, uh, Ronnie told me the place was nestled in a little mountain town. Old West theme, Banjo Patterson country. It had been purchased, uh, just been purchased by a for-profit college. I hardly knew what that meant or what the difference might be. Some place called Golden, Colorado. It's a friendly place. It was a sanatorium, you know, at one point, late 19th century or something, sometime then. And all the buildings around, so the air could circulate, cure the consumptives. Didn't work. They all died. And now it's, now it's a college. I asked her... Uh, I asked Carmen what Ignacio had told her about the place, but she made a vague gesture. Her self-possession reminded me that I was unused to sophisticates. I was 35, but I was not a grown-up. She was a grown-up. Does your work, I asked, ever take you to Golden? Up north? West, she said. It could. Ronnie appeared on the porch with Meg. Another teacher at Golden, she looked young but dressed old, big glasses and an oversized cardigan. Ronnie, on the other hand, must have been in his 40s, but he looked 29. Black iron maiden shirt, beer in hand, leather bands at the ends of his skinny arms, bifocals perched on his small face. Derek, I see you met Carmen, she's a very good reporter. And as he talked, he cast his eyes on the yard below as though he'd lost something there. She writes about nuclear power, the future is nuclear. And Derek is something of a journalist too, I have to say. He makes these, well, I don't know, what do you call them, like TED Talks. You still make those? No, no, I didn't think you did. But they were quite good. What about the radium girls? I helped with that one. I helped a bit. He gave me a laugh as though it were ours to share. Carmen, to her credit, kept expressionless. I'm I'm addicted to med talk. I'm I'm addicted to TED Talks, Meg said. Carmen's hard sentence to say. Carmen smiled now, asked Meg what her own TED Talk would be about. That's a great question. Great for starting a conversation. She nodded at me as though I'd come up with it. As an artist, she looked up in thought. A visual artist. I'd want it to be visual, an immersive experience. I mean, lately I've been obsessed with art that's dangerous. Like, if you want to get to experience it, you actually have to take a risk. Like Margaret Rosen, when she made those boxes you have to put your hand into. Or to place the art on top of a mountain where you have to hike up there to see it. Then she laughed to diffuse what she'd said, as though what we thought it was pretentious. It's, it's hard to have ideas. I'll be back, Carmen said, and she touched my hand as she said it. In a way, I was surprised that she was interested. Every man has a dose of vanity, and I have it too. But I know what I look like. I was good-looking as a kid, but the word now is probably dissipated. <laughs> Bill Gates, I said to Meg, released mosquitoes at his TED Talk. Ooh, she said, that's exactly it. Obviously, you don't want to hurt anybody, but they have to feel like there's a risk, or why bother? Otherwise, it's decoration. Ronnie pointed at me with his beer hand. You should make one of your TED Talks for Meg here. Art that hurts. Go viral with that. You know, now that you're out here, you should start up your series again. 
They were called warning shots, I explained to Meg, who had found a seat on the porch's lone chair. It looked like a couple of logs hewn together with a chainsaw. We only did two. You know the radium girls, Ronnie said. These girls made glow-in-the-dark watch dials. About a hundred years ago, I didn't want him to screw up the movie he'd edited. When radium was discovered... They painted it onto the second and minute hands, and between watches, they'd lick the brush tips. And no one knew what the stuff did, or at least they didn't. And they were all poisoned. Anyway, we used it as a metaphor. Still on YouTube, Ronnie said. Let's go and watch it. That's fascinating, Meg said. I'd love to make a piece where you had to ingest something, but you don't know anything about it. I don't know. That's a bad idea, but you know what I mean. Ignacia stepped onto the small porch, and Carmen came out alongside him. We have to go, she said, looking blankly with that we. But it was nice meeting you. She reached for my hand, and I gave it to her to shake. So Denver would be like New Haven after all, expounding on past glories that weren't really glories, feeling odd moments of happiness that had nothing to do with worldly success, misreading strangers. Then as I touched Carmen's hand, I felt something like rough paper in her fingers. It was a matchbook. It was a cliche move I'd never actually seen in person, but I I gratefully (laughs) hid it in my palm and slipped it into my pocket. She hadn't held my eyes when she handed it to me, and she didn't look up as she ducked again inside. I'm coming, Derek, Ronnie said, coming to see that young man who made videos. I said that I'd be there in a second, and then I was outside alone, Ferris wheel spinning its lights inside a new and infinitely possible place. Thanks. Before Dan gets back, I just want to say, this, being here, I know you probably all have lives to get to, but be, being here um, again tonight reminds me that the first time I came here, which was a year ago today, the first time I came to Lighthouse, and there was, a, not the same day, a year ago around now, and it was the reading, and it was a student reading, and I was just, I just moved to Colorado, and I was just knocked out by the quality of student readings, and I just couldn't believe, and I thought, i got to get involved with this place, and I've been so happy that I did, and I'm so grateful to you for asking me to read here, and for, for, every, for Andrea and Michael for for running the place and for everybody here. So thank you. I'm glad you did new stuff. Um, Thank you so much, everybody. Um, I would love to see all your faces again, so don't be strangers, okay? Have a good night. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.